This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Simply have to identify, admit, acknowledge your sins to God, and instantly you are forgiven, cleansed from all unrighteousness, known and unknown sins, those confessed and those unconfessed. You are restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, so that you can resume your spiritual advance. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together to study your word, to focus on what you have revealed to us, that we may understand it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and see how these things apply to our thinking and to our lives. Father, we thank you for a nation that guarantees us the freedom to assemble, the freedom to worship without interference from the government. We thank you for a nation where we have had so many in the past who have been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to preserve and protect those freedoms. Father, we pray for our president. We pray for our civil and political leaders that you might uh, continue to guide and direct them, that they would have the wisdom, the courage, the stamina to deal with the enemies that would seek to destroy us. And, Father, we pray for us that in our own spiritual life we might realize that we, too, are in a battle and our strength is from you, that we are to be strong in your strength and in your power and might. Father, we pray that we might learn what it means to do that through a study of your word, that we might realize that it is the study of your word that you have determined is the way that we grow. This is how we mature. We learn the nature of reality by studying your word, which is truth. And as we align our thought with absolute truth as revealed in your word, then we can live our lives consistent with reality as you have created it. Father, we pray that we would have the courage to not only make the study of your word the highest priority in your life, but also its application, that we might realize that we have been saved for a purpose that we have been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, that we have been saved in order to glorify you, and that as your children, as members of your royal family, we are spiritual aristocracy, and we need to learn what that means 
and how to live in accordance with that. And Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Language is something that we often take for granted. We don't think too much about the nature or structure of language unless you happen to be an English major studying a grammar course. You simply learn to, to speak as you're a child, as you're an infant. You grow up. You communicate with people. Sometimes your communication becomes an issue as you have matured and you've gotten married and you enter into certain uh, disagreements with your spouse and you wonder about your or their ability to communicate with you. But for most people, the whole concept of communication is not something that they spend a whole lot of time thinking about. And yet, everything we talk about, everything we do in life, whenever we are associated with anyone else, is built upon a foundation of communication and language. Last time I talked about how the first three verses in Revelation chapter 1 carry within them an an embedded doctrine of language. So let's open our Bibles to Revelation 1 and just take a few moments to review some of the things that I pointed out. As we went through that study of language and communication, I was headed to developing a basic orientation understanding of the doctrine of hermeneutics, which means interpretation. Hermeneutics is spelled H-E-R. M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S, hermeneutics. Now, Revelation chapter 1 begins the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to display to his faithful slaves things which must quickly take place. And he communicated it by sending his angel to his slave John, who bore witness. There's another key communication term. So far we've seen revelation, which is disclosure, uh, to show or to display to his servants. Again, a communication term. Uh, He communicated it. Semeneo, another communication term, to his slave John, who faithfully bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, another communication term, and to all things that he saw. Another communication term, he sees this visual image like he's, as if he's watching a DVD or a movie and he is recording these events. And then he concludes with a blessing or benediction. Blessed is he who reads, again a communication concept. Blessed is he who reads, and we saw that that is the uh, reading out loud or the exposition or exegetical teaching of the Scripture of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed or obey or keep the things that are written in it. Again, a communication term. Written in it for the time is near. A warning. This is where the first three verses which make up that, that initial prologue, it's where it's driving to. You want the application? It's in that last phrase. It's interesting. Sometimes people get the idea that, I want to go to church and I want to have something I can take home. Well, sometimes Paul takes, takes a long time to get there. John takes a long time to get there. In this case, we get our application at the end of verse 3. The time is near. It's a warning. Pay attention right now because you don't know how much time until the Lord returns. 
What's embedded in this is the idea that we can understand the revelation of God. Often you'll hear people say, well, I tried to read my Bible, but I, I just don't understand it. Well, let's think about that sentence for just a minute. What you're saying is that God doesn't have the ability to communicate in a way that you can understand it. What you're really saying is you're too lazy to take the time to try to understand what God says. Because God is the one who created each of us in His image and likeness, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which means that He created within us a receptor. Just like you turn on your radio, you have a receiver there. They can receive an FM signal, an AM signal, and receives that communication. The same way you can understand the communication of God. God designed it a certain way so that we can understand it. Now, there are different ways in which God expresses himself. In some passages, he uses poetry. Other passages, he uses uh, legal structures or covenant forms, as we've studied. And in some other passages, it's history. There's all kinds of different ways in which God has revealed himself. And, of course, he revealed himself originally in Hebrew and Greek. It takes time before we uh, can understand some of these things. We've got to go through translation. And then it was written two to 3,000 years ago, so there's a certain cultural difference. But it's understandable. It's not uh, something that is not understandable. We have a blessing that if you read it, that is, if it's taught, and you listen, and you heed it, then there's a special blessing in relationship to Revelation. That assumes the fact that you're able to hear it and understand it and apply it. If it's not understandable, then it would be fruitless to say there's a blessing from it. We have clear terminology here that indicates that God expects us to be able to understand Revelation. Yet, as we'll see as we go through the book, there's so many different interpretations that people have come up with. And, of course, that leaves people saying, well, how can you really know because there's you know, 495 different interpretations of Revelation? Well, there's a lot of different interpretations of just about anything. But that doesn't mean you can't know the truth. You can know something. You know, this is the agnostic's position. Well, I can't really know anything for sure. I like to respond to that by saying, well, do you know that for sure? Well, they can either say, oh, yes, that's sure. You can't know anything for sure. Well, then they've just, they've just contradicted themselves. Now they say, well, no, maybe you can know something for sure. Well, we know one thing for sure, that maybe you don't know everything for sure. So let's start there. Maybe there are other things we can know. So nobody can live on the basis of agnosticism. Everybody says that they know something. They just use an agnostic argument because they don't want to come face-to-face with the demands and accountability to a personal infinite God. So God gives us a revelation here and a warning that the time is near because there's going to be accountability. There's accountability because that is what goes along with the first divine institution as we studied on Sunday night, uh, on Wednesday night, that that of volition of personal responsibility. If you're going to be personally responsible, that implies that there's going to be personal accountability as well. And there's personal accountability for unbelievers at the great white throne judgment, and there's personal accountability for believers at the judgment seat of Christ. So there is personal accountability for the things that we say and we do in this life. But the presupposition is that we're able to understand what God says. And I pointed out last time that language is crucial. 
It's the framework for understanding everything. And what we see in our postmodern world is that there is an attack on language that you can't really know, that you have to deconstruct uh, whatever the writing is or the author or whatever it is in order to find what the embedded kernel is. And this is nothing new. We started to develop the doctrine of language. We went back to Genesis 1 where I pointed out that the first activity that we see of God in creation is that God spoke. We have the spoken word. He said, let there be light. And a dog didn't appear. You didn't see water appear. There was, there was light. And he separated the light from darkness. And then God spoke, and there are other things that he creates in the process of the uh, seven-day creation restoration week. But when God speaks, he means certain things, and other meanings are excluded completely from that utterance. And I pointed out that at the core of reality is language, that it can be expressed mathematically, but at the core of everything is language. Think a couple of examples I did not use last week. First of all, think about a computer. In a computer, you can create a virtual reality. You've got all kinds of games that create various scenarios, everything, and you have computers that create all kinds of animation that we see in movies. So they create all kinds of realities. Yet if you get past the visuals, what do you find? You find just a bunch of ones and zeros. You find a language, and it is that language that has the computer cre- creating all of those visuals, all those images, that, that virtual reality. You have a language that operates inside your body that has your body doing what it does as you age, as you get older. Some of you notice that this language kicks in and one day you look in the mirror and you don't see yourself as much as you see your mother or your father. And that's kind of a scary thing for some people. As you begin, But that's that DNA code, that language that's embedded in your cell structure that is communicating uh, to your body and all of that. So at the root of all creation is this concept of language. And language is understandable. And the Bible roots this language in God. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. This isn't even, in a, in a sense, the thought of God. This is his uh, spoken word. He speaks and all the heavens were made. So language is at the core of everything. So we have to understand some things about the nature of language. Psalm 33, 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It is God's word that guarantees that everything is the way that it is. Now, as we look at Genesis chapter 1, there's a couple of other observations we ought to make. When God spoke and said, let there be light, And there was light. He saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. And then what did God do? God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God began to provide nomenclature and language to the things that he created. Now, when God creates Adam, God has initialized Adam's vocabulary. And then he gives Adam the responsibility to go out and categorize and name the animals. So this involves Adam's use in development of analytical skills as he evaluates all the animals and he sees which animals belong to which kind. 
And so what's embedded in language now is also the concept of categorization. We have day and we have night. And we have, uh, furthermore, as God creates, he names uh, certain things. And uh, the waters he called seas down in verse 10. And he calls man uh, Adam. So as God initiates, he gives names. And this nomenclature involves categories. And man's thinking his, his brain, his mental activity is based on this categorization that God gives so that we're all able to communicate to each other because when we speak and you talk about uh, any subject, let's say you talk about a car, as soon as you talk about a car, which is a universal concept, there's all kinds of different cars. You have Jaguars and BMWs and Mercedes and, and Fords and, and Peugeots. And if you're in the... Uh, former Soviet bloc, you have Ladas and all kinds of strange little cardboard cards that they, cars that they come up with over there, but they're all cars. They don't look alike, they don't have the same quality, but when I talk about an automobile and you talk about, about an automobile, there's a universal concept. We're able to communicate to each other because of categories. This is how we learn things, this is how we store information in our souls, and this is how that information is retrieved and applied, is because we get in a situation and we realize, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, okay, what promise do I pull out? And we reach over into the category and we pull out a promise related to fear or anxiety, and we claim that promise. So all of this structure is built into creation by God. Creation isn't the way it is by happenstance. God has created everything the way it is to function certain ways, and everything is interrelated and correlates together. As a result of that, language, which has its origin in God, not in man. That's a fundamental concept. And what what goes along with that, just another thing I wanted to point out, is that music, music has its origination with God as well. Uh, the angels are the first to sing. They sing at the foundation of the earth, Job 38, 4 through 7. Man doesn't invent singing. The singing precedes man. It's in heaven all of the time. There's tremendous uh, music in heaven. So language precedes man. Language is something that man has the ability to utilize, and so therefore he's able to communicate. To utilize language implies being able to understand precisely what is being communicated. So when we come to something like Revelation, which is a book where people say, well, you can't understand it, there's all these symbols, there's these beasts, there's these uh, candlesticks, there's, there's the angels, there's all of these uh, uh, different judgments, what does all of that mean? You can't understand it. Sure you can. God communicated it very clearly. And there are ways in which we can understand this. So... It all goes back to this concept of language, that and words and language and communication are inherent to all of creation. Another passage that deals with this is Hebrews 11.3. By faith, that is by trust, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. And here the Greek word that is translated word of God isn't the word logos, one which you're familiar with because of its use with Jesus, because of the use of the term logos, uh, theu, the word of God, referring to the scripture that we've talked about in Revelation 1, verse 2. 
And the word logos is also used to refer to the words of this prophecy in Revelation 1.3. But this word is the Greek word rhema. And rhema has to do with the spoken word. The spoken word that God spoke, and it was so. So it's, the Scripture again is very precise. The worlds were prepared by the spoken word of God, as we saw in Psalm 33, uh, 3 and 6. Or, uh, the worlds were, or 6 and 9, rather. That the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. And then finally, a passage that is familiar to all of us, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Lagos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here we see the word Lagos used as a title for Jesus Christ, because in John 1, 14, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word here has to do with revelation. It has to do with disclosure. The, con- the concept of logos is a uh, complex term. It can be translated many different ways. Reason, logic, it's the word where we get our word logic. We also get our word study. For example, in a word like biology, the study of life, logi, L-O-G-Y, comes from logos, uh, zoology, uh, uh, astrology. Anything with L-O-G-Y at the end is a study of something. So Lagos is, refers to not just the communication concept, but study, reason, rationality, indicating that undergirding everything in the universe is a rational, knowable structure. We don't live in an irrational, incomprehensible world. Now, man may not be able to understand everything that's there, but God does. He is an omniscient. God, He created everything in the universe, so everything is comprehensible to Him and therefore is under His sovereign control, even though we may not understand why things are happening the way they are or what is going on in our own life. Now, when we come to John 1.1, we're brought face-to-face with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as a communicator. He is the one who is the revealer of the Trinity. God the Father is the planner or the architect. It is Jesus Christ who is the one who reveals Him. John 1 also tells us that no one has seen the Father at any time. It is the only begotten of God who has revealed Him. So when you see God appear to Adam and Eve in the garden, it's God the Son because no man has seen God at any time. When you see God appear to Abraham, In Genesis 15, it's not God the Father, it's God the Son. When you see God appear to Moses on Mount Sinai, it's not God the Father, it's God the Son. No man has seen the Father at any time. The Son, the only begotten of God, has explained Him. So that's important to understand because as we get into this passage in John 1.1, we're instantly confronted with the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, when we come to the rest of Revelation 1, we're going to just be overwhelmed by the doctrine of the Trinity. Revelation chapter 1 is one of the most significant passages for understanding the magnificence, the glory of the Trinity in all of its complexity. But before we get there, I want to conclude our study of language by just going over basic concepts of hermeneutics. 
What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics, or the English word hermeneutics, derives from the Greek word hermeneuo. Looks like this in the Greek. H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-O. So you see where we get our word uh, hermeneutic or interpretation. And this is the science and art. It is both a science and an art. It, the word hermeneuo in Greek, hermeneuo, means to cipher, to interpret, or to understand. And this is the idea that we can uh, we, we apply certain principles to any, any utterance, whether it's a written statement like poetry, whether it is a verbal statement, whatever it is, we can understand it. You apply certain principles in order to understand what things are being said. Now, the basic concept of hermeneutics is that you interpret Scripture the same way you interpret every other piece of literature. The Bible isn't just some some sort of mystical, otherworldly book that just dropped down out of heaven. And so we have to utilize some uh, mystical, uh, non-rational means of understanding it, where you just read a passage. You've, you've known people who do this. Just open the Bible up, close their eyes, plop their finger down on the page, read the verse, and then you know start figuring out what it says. And they just go off in the Thule somewhere, and they don't. Uh, have any controls for that. The Bible can't mean anything to anybody any more than the instructions to fill out your uh, tax form can mean whatever, the, whatever you want them to mean. The Bible is literature written to man and follows the same principles of literature as everything else. So the basic concept or definition of hermeneutics is called a literal grammatical hermeneutic. We believe in the plain interpretation of Scripture. And here's a definition from a pastor by the name of David L. Cooper, who incidentally was Arnold Fruchtenbaum's pastor. He was a Messianic Jew, and it's a concise definition of hermeneutics. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, Make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. A great concise statement of of interpretation. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. Now, that's also a, a long sentence, so let's break it down to make sure we understand what it is that I am saying. The first part... When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. In other words, if you look at the Scripture and you read it, and in terms of everyday use of language and meaning, you think that that this means X, then that's what it means. You don't need any kind of special um, 
insight from God. You don't need the Urim and the Thummim. You don't need a special pair of glasses like uh, Joseph Smith had up on uh, Palmy- the mountain in Palmyra when the angel Moroni appeared to him and gave him the Book of Mormon. You just read what it says, and uh, you may have to use a dictionary, but you just assign to the words their basic, everyday, normal usage, and that makes sense. So when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, and by common sense he just means common, everyday, ordinary use of Scripture, then make no other sense. Don't try to read something into it. Don't try to extrapolate from it into some sort of higher sense. See, what happened in the early church in the history of interpretation due to the influence of Greek thought uh, and Neoplatonism, you had a man in the 3rd century A.D., that's about... 200 years after Christ, by the name of Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. And Origen developed the allegorical means of interpretation. And he said there were three levels of interpretation. You had the literal meaning, you had a figurative meaning, and then you had a spiritual meaning. Now, the spiritual meaning didn't have anything to do with the literal meaning. In other words, as soon as you got to the, into the figurative meaning and the spiritual meaning, you were it was like a... Um, sort of like a, 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 a hot air balloon that had been cut loose from its anchor rope. It just starts drifting with the wind and can go anywhere. And so allegorical interpretation entered into the history of the church. And one of the things that they did was they would go to passages like Revelation 20, which talked about the thousand-year rule of Christ. They would say, well, that thousand years doesn't refer to a thousand literal years. That just refers to a perfect period of time. And the millennial kingdom was no longer a literal thousand-year reign of Christ where he came to the earth, reigned in Jerusalem from the city of David and the throne of David, for a thousand years, it became just allegorized. It became a spiritual form of the kingdom in heaven. And Jesus is now ruling from David's throne. It's spiritualized in heaven. And we're in the kingdom now. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a literal kingdom. And that's what happened. And so for a period of 1,300 years from roughly 250 A.D. to 15, the mid-1500s, amillennialism, that's what that that position is known as the a prefix means no millennium no literal millennium it's called amillennialism and it is the dominant view for about 1300 years and it isn't until with the reformation under martin luther that there is a return to a literal grammatical historical interpretation now let me talk about those three words literal grammatical and historical Literal means that we take every word literally, but that doesn't mean that we deny figures of speech. I'll talk about that in a minute. But in its normal, everyday sense, that's what this definition from uh, Dr. Cooper is explaining. So literal meaning. Sometimes a, a literal meaning includes metaphor, simile, hyperbole, all kinds of figures of speech. What will often happen is those who are in, involved in covenant theology, those who are involved in in uh, other positions that do not believe in dispensationalism, what they will do is they will say, oh, you can't be consistent in your literal interpretation. Nobody can do that. You guys can't be consistent. You just take everything in a very, in a, in a very wooden sense. 
it's funny that that how inconsistent they are. Uh, the there's a book that I have on my shelf that it, we had to use uh, in seminary. I've used it many many times since then. It's about three inches thick. It's called Figures of Speech in the Bible by Ethelbert Bullinger, E.W. Bullinger. Bullinger was a great dispensationalist. He believed in the plain, literal interpretation of Scripture. And he has written the definitive work on figures of speech and language in, in the, in, in, written in English. He, he classifies over, over a thousand different figures of speech in the Bible. So obviously, if you believe in a literal interpretation, that doesn't mean that you don't believe in figures of speech uh, simile, metaphor, things of that sense. So this is what we mean by literal interpretation. The plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, and we should make no other sense. Therefore, we should take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning. This is why you do word studies. If you're studying the Scripture and you see a word like logos, then you go to a concordance. You get a Strong's concordance or a uh, we used to say strongs for the strong and youngs for the young and crudens for the crude. But you, you get a concordance which you list every word in English in alphabetical order and all of the verses where that word appears in English. And so you'd look, take a word like logos, it's the English word word, you'd look up word. And most of these concordances will identify the Greek word as logos and then it will list every passage where that word is used. And you look at those to get a sense of how that word is used. For every word has a range of meaning in, uh, in usage. And you look at that, and that's how you do a word study. It's very important. You can't just say, well, I think this means X. No, you can't. You have to demonstrate that it means that in the Scripture and that it is used that way. Or if it's a word that's used only one or two times in the Bible, then you have to be able to demonstrate through uh, literature that's as close to the Bible as you can find in time and history to demonstrate that the word means that. You can't just jump out there and say, well, it means this. You have to take into account the author's use of that word. Uh, Paul may use a word a certain way, and it's quite a bit different from the way Aristophanes used it in the 5th century B.C., Remember, classical Greek is classical Greek, and there are certain idioms and words that survived the 500 years between classical Greek and Koine Greek. But classical Greek wasn't used. Now, get that. Classical Greek was not used by Paul. He used Koine Greek. But there were idioms from classical Greek that survived, just as there are idioms from Elizabethan English that still survive today. For example, you may have heard the phrase that if somebody uh, does something damaging to themselves, or if I heard it in the context of a debate, that if they have committed a, a flaw in their logic, they're hoist on their own petard. Now, that's a phrase that comes out of Hamlet. And it's not a word, a phrase, phraseology that's modern at all, but many people know that phrase because they're familiar with Shakespeare, and it continues to be an idiom that is used uh, in, in the modern world. It is not modern English. It's Elizabethan English. But because it is still used in modern English, it's modern English. It's not Elizabethan. You don't have to go study uh, and be an expert in Elizabethan English to figure out how it's used. Just look around modern usage of that term. You can figure it out. It means that, uh, that you have somehow uh, committed a fatal self-inflicted wound. A petard at the 
uh, Elizabethan times was like a, a small grenade or bomb or mine that the uh, 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 in combat an engineer would tunnel up and stick it under the uh, fortress wall and then he would light the fuse and of course gunpowder was relatively uh, new at that time and it didn't burn with an even rate and sometimes the the uh, guy would uh, light the fuse and it would the five second fuse or 30 second fuse would burn down in two seconds and he would get blown up with it and he would be hoist on his own petard and so it helps to kind of know the background a little bit, gives a little color to the meaning, but you don't have to know that necessarily figure it out from modern English, uh, the way it is used in, in, in modern English. So we have phrases like that. You have to study words and word usage, and sometimes if a word or phrase is rare in Koine Greek, you have to go back to classical Greek to trace its historical usage in order to pick up various nuances. Uh, so we're to take every word as ordinary, usual, and everyday language. Koine Greek was the common Greek. That's what Koine means. It was common Greek. It was the Greek that everybody spoke on the street. It was street language. It was what we would call today, you know, hip hop, gutter language, uh, hip hop language, or ghetto language, or street language, or bar language. It was the language of every guy on the street. It was the language of the of the uh, the worker, the laborer. It wasn't the language of the academician and the uh, university professor and the uh, and the intellectual. It was everyday usage. So that because the purpose of writing the Bible was to communicate eternal truth to everyday people so that they could learn it, understand it, and apply it to their life. God had a message to communicate, and he did it in a way not to hide it. He's not trying to to cloak it, make it something difficult. He made it very clear and understandable. Usually what happens when we say, I don't understand it, is there's a little conflict with our sin nature, and we really don't want it to mean what it says because, well, that's a little convicting, so... Let's move on. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Unless, now there are exceptions, unless the facts of the immediate context. See, that's why you have to do context studies. You don't just look at the word as, it, as alone. You say, okay, what kind of context is this? Is this in poetry? See, if a word, even in English, if a word appears in poetry, it has a different, broader sense than if it just appears in legal literature. A word that appears in legal literature, for example, if you're at a, uh, looking at a, at a marriage license and you see the word marry, well, you know what that means. That is a very technical legal term. But if you're just talking in everyday language and you talk about, well, they're not really married to that idea, well, now how am I using it? You're using it in a figurative sense, but that figurative meaning still has a literal meaning. It's rooted in that literal, literal usage. And if I were to use that word in a figure of speech in a, in a poetic context, it might have a little broader meaning. So you have to take the context into account. Unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages. This is the old principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture. And I learned this last year, I'm not sure I like the phrase, I don't use it, 
But I learned a new phrase this last year that apparently has been around for years. I never ran across it. I was never used in any of the hermeneutics courses I took in, in, uh, uh, in seminary that I remembered, but it's called the analogy of faith. Well, what that means is comparing Scripture with Scripture, just another term. So you compare Scripture with Scripture. You compare related passages, similar, similar contexts, to see how a parallel passage will shed light on the verbiage and, and ideas there. For example, next Sunday morning in 1 Corinthians, when we get into 1 Corinthians 15.50 and we read that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither can corrupt, corruption inherit incorruption, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all, be, we shall not all uh, sleep. We shall all be uh, changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. Well, how are we going to understand that? Well, let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at the fact that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with Him in the clouds. So you compare Scripture with Scripture in order to fill out the idea because the way Scripture is written, the writer doesn't say everything there is to say about the subject in one place. This is called the doctrine of progressive revelation that God revealed His Word to us progressively over time. Gave a little information here, a little information there, a little information here. You know, you parents do that with your kids when you're training them. When they're in a, a young age of three, four, five, and they say, Mommy, where do people come from? You say, well, you know, some, some parents get all wrapped around the axle and they start going out and buying an anatomy book. No, they just come from their mommy. Okay, great, I'm happy. That's all I need to know. You know, a couple of years later, they ask, well, where do babies come from? Well, now you've got to go into a little more detail. And when they get a little older, you go into a little more. That's called progressive revelation. You only give them what they can handle at that age level. And, it, and then you give them a little more and a little more until finally they get the whole detailed picture. And that's how Scripture was given, just a, a little here and a little there. And this is why when you study Scripture sometimes, and we'll see this in Revelation, to understand the images in Revelation, you have to go all the way back to sometimes Genesis where those same images are used. And we discover that, for example, when we get down to, I think it's Revelation 12, and it talks about the 12 stars and the woman and uh, who gives birth to the child in the wilderness, and you have the 12 stars and the sun and the moon. Where do you find that information? Well, to know what those stand for, you don't just close your eyes and contemplate your navel and hope for liver quiver to tell you what those mean. You go back to Genesis and you read that Joseph had a dream. And in that dream, the sun was his father Jacob and the moon was his mother and the stars were his brothers. So that's an image for the nation Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. My, you don't have to guess at what these things mean. You just have to know the Bible. You just have to read the Scripture. So the Scripture interprets itself. So we have to study Scripture in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths. In other words, an, an axiom is a principle. It's a standard principle. And there are certain principles of interpretation that one always applies when interpreting anything. Most of you do it unconsciously, but you know when you sit down and you read a contract that you have to interpret it in a way that's different from reading a Hallmark greeting card. And when you 
And one of the things that you try to figure out and learn when you're an adolescent is that when you get a greeting card in the mail from someone and it says, love so-and-so, you have to figure out whether how you're going to interpret that word love. Hmm. Does this mean they love me like a brother? Does this mean they're deeply, passionately, wildly in love with me? This, are they just putting it down because that's what you do? They're just saying that. So you have to analyze that. And every teenager that got a letter from anybody, or some of you a little older, and you got a letter signed, love, so-and-so, you went through that process and you were spent a while trying to figure out, well, just what do they mean? How serious is this? So that, and you applied fundamental, or you were trying to learn basic axiomatic and fundamental truths to uh, interpret that, that particular phrase. So, You interpret it literally unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. And one of these would be that you look at how prophecy is fulfilled. I mean, if you're going to interpret prophecy that isn't fulfilled, and the question is how literally will this be fulfilled, one of the things you should do is go back to Scripture and see how prophecy has been fulfilled. And there are numerous prophecies that were given in the Old Testament that were literally fulfilled. We think about the prophecies related to the first coming of our Lord, that He would be born in Bethlehem. And He wasn't born in Nazareth. He wasn't born down the street from Bethlehem. He wasn't born in, in some city that was like Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. And he, when He died, He was crucified. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was laid upon Him so that He became the substitutionary atonement for us. In the Old Testament, you clearly described a death by crucifixion when a death by crucifixion was not being utilized at that time. It was, hadn't even been invented yet when David first talks about it in Psalm 22. And yet it's clear that those prophecies were fulfilled in a literal manner. So you compare Scripture with Scripture. Now let's get, let me give you a couple of examples. Here's what we mean by literal interpretation. Isaiah 2.2, we have the, word, the words mountains and the word hills. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house. Now how are we going to understand the Lord's house? Is this the church? No, we have to look at the context, the historical context. This is the temple, and it's on top of a mountain. It's on the temple mount, and this is in the future, that the temple will be on the temple mount. So mountain there is a specific literal mountain in Israel, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountain. So that refers that this is going to be the most significant mountain of all mountains on the earth and shall be exalted above all the hills. Because of the presence of the Lord there, this is going to be the most significant of all hills or mountains. So we take the word hills and mountains there in a literal literal sense. Now we have a slightly different context in Isaiah 55, 12. This is talking about the millennial kingdom. And Isaiah writes, our God is speaking here and says, For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. This is talking about the nation Israel in the millennial kingdom. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. What does that mean? The mountains are going to start singing? 
No, this, no. All of a sudden, you, you you figured it out right away. This isn't this isn't this isn't a normal literal sense. This is a figurative literal sense. And there's an expression here that is being uh, uh, an idiom that's being used here. The mountains and the hills aren't going to literally sing. But what this is talking about is that the curse is thrown off of nature. There's a curse on nature right now, and that curse is going to be reversed in the millennial kingdom. So it is personifying the mountains and the hills as rejoicing because the curse has been turned back. See, the personification is when you attribute human personal attributes to an impersonal object. It's a figure of speech. It's not literal. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, what kind of image do you have there? See, you're not going to have trees clapping. Trees don't have hands. They're not going to clap. But it's a picture of rejoicing that the curse is rolled back. So you, that's still literal interpretation. If you're not a dispensationalist and you don't believe in literal interpretation, you really get into some, some odd inter, interpretive options. For example, Isaiah 65:25, talking again about the millennial kingdom, says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together... And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Isn't that fascinating? Now, if you take this literally, what we mean is there's going to be a time when you're going to go out to the barn and the wolves and the lambs are going to be all cuddled up together. And the lion is going to be out there eating hay. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, taken literally, it, it tells us that there's going to be peace and harmony in the, in the millennial kingdom, that the curse on the animals is going to, that happened as a result of the fall is going to be rolled back. And we're not going to have violence. We're not going to have this, this struggle that we have today. But in uh, covenant theology, those who hold to a more allegorical interpretation, who do not believe in a future literal millennium, they interpret this as saying, well, the wolf is Saul. Where do you get Saul in this whole passage? The wolf is Saul, and the lamb is what he became after he was saved. And just as lions are converted so to, to straw eaters, so people must be converted to be in the kingdom. You see, where do you get that, Tom? His face is all screwed See, you don't know. There's no control there. But, see, the implication for them is if you take it literally, you end up with a literal future millennium, and they can't, their theological system won't accept that. And what you always have to watch is letting your theological system interpret Scripture. You have to let Scripture interpret itself, and from there you build uh, your, your theology. Isaiah 65:11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. So these are those who forget the temple, forget my holy mountain. They set a table for fortune. In other words, they're worshiping, you know, the God fortune, an impersonal universe again, and, and destiny. That's their God rather than the God of Scripture. That's the literal interpretation. But in allegorical interpretation, the holy mountain is not the literal Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which is the center of true worship at that time, but it's a reference to the church. You forget the church. Well, where do you get the church in Isaiah? 
That's not there. It's not in the passage. It's not in the context. You don't even get it by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So just a couple of examples to see the problems. Now when you come to, when we come to our revelation, there's three broad interpretive schemes. And I'll refer to these, so I want you to be knowledgeable, knowledgeable about these terms. The first is preterist. Preterist simply means past. And these are people, it was a dead view 30 years ago, and it's been resurrected. It's the idea that all this is just symbols, code words for uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that Jesus came in the clouds of judgment in 70 A.D. And so we're now living in the millennium. The historicist position looks at it as pre- See, you look at these three views as past, present, and future. The pa- preterist is past. Historicist is this is in the present time. And so we can go to uh, Revelation chapter 12 and figure out who the beast is. Maybe it's Napoleon. And maybe then we, maybe we jump over to chapter 15. Where are we now? Uh, maybe we're in Revelation 17. It's trying to identify the events in Revelation with current events. You see this all the time. It's called newspaper exegesis, historicism. And, and you'll get a, a certain number of dispensationalists who stick one foot over in the historicist camp and try to go around and identify everything that's happening today with fulfillment of prophecy. For example, there's a fellow down in Groton, I think, who's written a book on prophecy, and he claims that Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. Well, Second Thessalonians 2 says the Antichrist isn't revealed until the restrainer is removed. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. So guess what, folks? We're still here. The Holy Spirit's still here. We, the Antichrist isn't revealed until after uh, the church is removed. And then the third view is our view. It's called futurism. We believe that the, that the events of Revelation uh, 4 and following are all in the future. They haven't been fulfilled yet, but they will be fulfilled at some time. And there is a tremendous amount of doctrine there in those passages that are relevant for today. Remember, the blessing of Revelation 1-3 is, Blessed is he who reads, that is, who exegetes and teaches the book of Revelation. And blessed is he who hears the words of this prophecy. How about that? That means that you can study prophecy, stuff that may not happen in our lifetime, may not happen for a thousand years, and you're going to receive blessing for your spiritual life here and now by studying prophecy. Now, there's a lot of people who say, oh, I don't want to study prophecy. I want to study the stuff that's important to my spiritual life right now. Well, Revelation 1.3 says prophecy is important to your spiritual life right now, and if you study it, there's a special blessing for you as a believer in the church age. So we have these three forms of interpretation and we study study the we hold to the futurist interpretation. Now what are some basic principles? Just some of those axiomatic truths. I just have three or four to to run by to remind us. Scripture must be interpreted literally. We we study the words, we study the grammar, we look at uh uh, at the structures, I take the time, uh, especially if it's complicated, to diagram the sentences in the Greeks to make sure you understand the author's thought flow. That's why you diagram things, is to understand thought flow and the relationship of nouns to verbs and participles and clauses and to make sure you can reproduce 
the author's thought and intent because what matters is what the author intended to communicate, not what I want him to communicate. There's only one meaning of anything. That's a basic principle. I don't think I put that down, but that's another principle. Interpretation only has one meaning. Well, that is. That's a second principle. Scripture has only one meaning. It doesn't have multiple You don't have layers of meaning. You only have one meaning. When you read your instructions to fill out your income tax, you don't say, well, what's, this, what's the hidden meaning here? What's the secondary meaning here? What's the spiritual meaning here? Scripture has only one meaning, the author's intended meaning. Third principle, Scripture must be interpreted by comparing Scripture with Scripture. You have to know Scripture. The Bible is an integrated, unified whole. You can't go in and take your razor blade and slice out one part of it without causing problems and everything else. You can't deny one basic doctrine in one part without it affecting everything else. Scripture must be interpreted in the light of its historical context. You have to understand the original context. We call that isagogics. You have to understand what was going on at that time in history. You have to understand the language, how it was used at that time, what the idioms were, what the figures of speech were at that time, so that you can uh, properly understand and interpret it. And finally, you must interpret Scripture before you can imply Scripture. See, if you don't know what it means, you can't figure out what it means to you. See, if I don't know what it meant to the seven churches in Asia when John wrote this, then I can't figure out how to apply it to me. And most people run right past that step of interpretation. They just want to read the Bible and say, oh, what does that mean to me? They didn't stop and say, well, what did he mean? Well, stay there for a long time. And if you figure out what he meant then the application is going to be obvious. The Holy Spirit's going to drive it home. I don't need to give you 15 points of how you can make this applicable in your life today. No, I just need to interpret it clearly, and the Holy Spirit's going to hit you between the eyes with a sledgehammer. The next time we'll come back, we'll start the introduction. We've gotten through the prologue, the first three verses, and next time we'll start the introduction, Revelation 1-4, and it is a power-packed, paragraph. All the way down to the end of the first chapter, this is the most powerful presentation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the Scripture, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this morning, to come face to face with uh, your Word, the, the magnificence of your communication to us, the design of your communication to us, the sufficiency of of what you have revealed to us, that it has been your desire to disclose to us, not to hide, that you are not covering something up, but you are revealing something to us. Father, we pray that under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we can not only accurately understand these things, but that we can see how they apply to our own thinking, to our own lives, and that we can properly have our, th- have our thinking adjusted to the reality as you've described it in your word. May we not take this lightly. We are your children. We are royal aristocracy. We have the right to be called sons of God, a a privilege of no other believer in all of history, and to whom much is given, much is expected. And we pray that we would be willing to uh, accept this challenge, and as we read in verse 3, for the time is near. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this time to make that both sure and certain, 
Salvation is based on faith alone, faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Him. And that's all you need to do. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of, of, uh, of anything other than trust in Christ. You don't have to uh, feel sorry for your sins, show proper remorse. You don't have to go through some kind of guilt hoops or religious hoops. You simply trust Christ as your Savior. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.